Well, we're in the middle of a series of messages that we've entitled Scary Families. We've got two more scary family messages this morning and then on Father's Day. And we're learning that the Bible is full of scary families. As a matter of fact, there are more scary families in the Bible than there are normal healthy families when you get right down to it. And here's our hope. By studying the blunders of others, we can spare ourselves the same mistakes and their scary consequences. And thus, we've subtitled our series of messages, Taking the Fright Out of Family Life. And as we've done each week, we're going to start with a few family photos of what I think seem to be scary families. Now, i got to do this because I'm very well aware that most of you live in perfect families. I know this. That there's always love and harmony and peace and never a harsh word and never a fuss or fight in your family. You live in just the perfect family. You know nothing about a scary family. And so in order to kind of set the mood and kind of get you going with me and get the juices flowing, I've got a few photos of some scary families. First of all, here's a family that's out on a limb. For starters, where do you find a tree with a limb that big? And this is scary to me. You got to wonder when is this limb going to snap? Well, second, here's a kid between two weird looking parents. And this looks real scary to me. When a child gets caught between two parents who are intent on acting strange, that's just like really scary. Third is the family funeral photo. Now, this is really scary, but you got to see this in the proper light. Notice what's going on here. Grandpa dies, at least we assume it's grandpa in the casket. And so what do we do? Hey guys, let's all gather around grandpa's casket, smile, laugh, say cheese, and get a nice family photo. Now that's just really scary to me. And then last, it's not scary to you, I guess, but it's scary to me. And then last but not least is a photo... Just your normal couple, wife with a bayonet, husband with a parrot. I mean, like, what's up with this? I figure that he probably complained about her talking too much, and this bayonet is the response. But no matter how you slice it, a bayonet-toting wife, this is, like, really scary. Well, this morning, I'm going to talk about a scary situation that has caused many a spouse to want to pick up a bayonet and shish kebab his or her mate. I want to talk about sexual betrayal. We call it infidelity. And I want to start here in 2 Samuel chapter 11. Read with me verse 1. It happened in the spring of the year, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel. And they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. Then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing. And the woman, she was very beautiful to behold. And so David sent and inquired about the woman. And someone said, is this not Bathsheba? 
the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And then David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him and he lay with her, for she was cleansed from her impurity and she returned to her house. Have you ever had an itch? I mean, a pestering, bothersome, uncontrollable itch. Have you ever had an itch? We've all had them, haven't we? We were walking in the woods and we rubbed up against some poison ivy and we started to itch. Or we tried on that wool sweater that grandma gave us for Christmas and oh boy was it itchy. Or we had an allergic reaction to the medicine. Or you were installing that insulation in the attic and it got all over your legs. That happened to me once. I scratched so hard I had to have stitches. Not really. I'm just pulling your leg. You get it? I'm just pulling your leg. Well, David had an itch. It was a warm spring evening. The stars were out. A gentle wind rustled the draperies. The breeze lured him through the bedroom arches for a night walk out on the palace porch. As he gazed out at the Jerusalem skyline, it reminded him of his sweeping victories and his enormous popularity, even his spiritual triumphs. But suddenly, he noticed through the palm branches a beautiful figure. The moonbeams acted like spotlights shining on the silhouetted figure of a gorgeous young woman. Bathsheba, she had gone to the rooftop to take a bath. For her, it was the end of a long, tiresome day. You see, her husband was off to battle. And in his place, it was up to her to oversee the household affairs. She was not used to such stress. And so after dinner, she decided to relax a bit, unwind, pamper herself with a refreshing shower. And so there she stood in the alabaster basin, completely naked, as her servant poured water down her perfectly proportioned figure. David just happened to cast a fleeting glance in her direction. It was unexpected access to unrivaled beauty. And without thinking, the king's eyes, they focused on her. Then they fixed on her. Then they feasted on her. The few minutes that David watched Bathsheba seemed like mere seconds when she finally stepped from the bowl and shook her hair dry and disappeared into her servant's towel, David wanted more. The pleasure had passed too fast. Who was this woman? When and how could he see her again? You see, David had an itch. The sad and scary outcome of David's life is that he scratched his itch. Little did he know the horror and the damage that one night's failure could do to his entire life. If the servant who fetched Bathsheba and brought her to David, if he knew what was going to happen, it would have been his patriotic duty to violate the king's request. For the sake of the nation, he would have bought Bathsheba a ticket on the next caravan out of town. He would have spared the king of what happened. But you see, David's mistake 
was to scratch the itch. And then he patched the scratch. Finally, he discovered that there was just one catch. There was a detail that he had it counted on. And so here's our outline this morning. We're going to talk about an itch followed by a scratch and a patch and a catch. Well, first, I want you to notice the itch. You know, some itches arise at the oddest times. They hit you out of the blue. I mean, the top of your nose suddenly starts to itch and you just have to scratch it. Or you got this little itch behind your ear. The source of the itch is more mysterious than it is obvious. It just comes out of the blue. And you know, these kinds of itches can occur in a marriage. Have you ever heard of the infamous seven-year itch? Supposedly, an unsettling discontent and boredom can arise within a marriage when it closes in on its seventh anniversary. Some folks say that the itch comes every seven years. There's the 14-year itch and the 21-year itch. Sometimes itches just happen. Of course, with other itches, the reason is more apparent. A bite or a rash or maybe some dryness can create an itch. And you know the same is true in a marriage. A biting comment or a rash outburst or maybe romantic dryness all produce marital itches. You see, when a, a, when a spouse gets bit, suddenly they become vulnerable to a tempting itch. Well, David's itch was the result of both the obvious and the mysterious. In one sense, David's itch just happened. David wasn't seeking to sin. He wasn't out on the porch with a pair of binoculars scanning for babes in the buff. I mean, he wasn't peering into Bathsheba's bathroom. He just saw her. Man, it just happened. Suddenly, surprisingly, spontaneously, his eyes landed on this bathing beauty. You see, this is how adultery usually begins. Author Florence Latour, she writes this, No good Christian man or woman gets up in the morning, looks out the window and says, My, this is a lovely day. I guess I'll go out and commit adultery. Yet many do it anyway. A chance encounter with an old friend. A late night at the office. A distress call to come over and fix the leaky faucet. A ride home from work or even church. A conversation at the water cooler with someone who really seems to care. A reconnection with a former flame on Facebook. You get sucked in suddenly without warning. It can start as innocently as a man and a woman becoming prayer partners. Or serving together at church. Be careful. The itch can come at any time. And just because you're a Christian doesn't mean you're exempt. Remember, this is David we're talking about here. David is no pervert or no pornographer. This was Prince David, not Peeping Tom. The Bible says that David was a man after God's own heart. He was the sweet psalmist of Israel. And Bathsheba? Well, ordinarily, she was a faithful wife. Her moment of weakness, her, her tiredness and her vulnerability was actually the result of her desire to please her husband and, and take care of business in his absence. This was not something the world would call ugly, a sex-crazed maniac and a back-alley prostitute. 
No, this was the king of Israel, chosen of God, and the noble Bathsheba, wife of Uriah. And yet it happens, even to Christians. Out of the blue, David gets an itch, and he scratches it. And here's what's really scary. In an instant, David wrecks two lives, and he ruins two families. And if it happened to David, my friend, it can happen to you. In one sense, this itch just hit David. But in another sense, David made some serious mistakes that facilitated this sin and made him more vulnerable to the itch. Three factors contributed to David's itch. There was a lack of direction, and then a lack of affection, and then finally a lack of discretion. For one, I want you to notice David's lack of direction. You know, this often contributes to a person's sexual failure. Notice verse 1 tells us, Now it came to pass in the spring of the year, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel. And they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. Now where is David supposed to be? This is the time of the year when kings go out to battle. David, you need to be with your men out in the heat of battle. After being cooped up inside the house all winter, every king needs a war or two to get the blood flowing again. Get the juices pumping. But instead of combat, David is sipping lemonade on the front porch. Now before we condemn David for his laziness, realize his rationale. We can have some empathy for him here. He had been on the run from Saul for nearly 20 years. And if that wasn't taxing enough, once he gained the throne, he he won victories over Israel's enemies. And he shored up her borders and expanded the kingdom. And he even brought the ark to Jerusalem. David had been a busy man, even serving God. In fact, God had promised David a house of his own, a dynasty of successors to reign over Israel after his death. You see, David had reached a milestone in his life. Seemingly, his struggles were over. He's now basking in the vindication of God's blessing. If anyone deserves some R&R, it was Dave. I mean, the king is on spring break. Author F.B. Meyer once warned us, Let us beware of our light, unguarded hours. Moments of leisure are more to be dreaded than those of strenuous toil. You see, while the bow is bent, while the game is on the line, there's no time for distraction. In the intensity of his trials, David remained focused on obedience to God. It was in his prosperity. That's what set David up for failure. David was a man in midlife. Career-wise, he was a success. But now he's bored and he's idle. There are few challenges left, and success has left him unsatisfied. Such a man becomes vulnerable to sexual temptation. See, these are the conditions that can start an itch. You know, it's ironic how both career frustration and career fulfillment both set a man up for the same temptation. You know, one man turns to sex to drown out his failures and bolster his battered self-worth. The other man, he turns to sex when he finds out the material success is hollow and empty and he reaches out for new thrills. 
It's interesting, the devil attacks from both angles. And when a man loses focus, his private life gets very, very scary. Boredom sets a man up for temptation. It's been said the devil tempts all men, but idle men tempt the devil. And yet, not only did David's lack of direction create a scary situation in his life, notice also his lack of affection. David neglected his relationship with God. You know, the Psalms tell us that ordinarily David spent time with God in the evenings while lying on his bed. In Psalm 63, verse 6, David himself wrote, When I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches. David would have never bedded Bathsheba if he'd gone to bed meditating on the Lord. Hey, beware when you become lethargic in your time spent with God. An absence of spiritual fervor sets a man up for sexual failure. David forgot that the spirit of a man is a rechargeable battery. Yesterday's victories don't guarantee today's triumphs. You see, the Lord is like a gas station. We need to drop in for frequent fill-ups. David forgot that. Notice, too, that David had strayed from the Lord in other areas of his life. And that's what made it easier for him to fall in this area. You know, when David took back... Or when Saul took back his daughter Michael and robbed David of his wife, David turned and he married Abigail. But he didn't stop there. He married other wives as well, five more to be exact. Typical of Oriental kings, David built quite a harem. And even though David's womanizing may have been socially acceptable, it sure wasn't pleasing to the Lord. He compromised the clear command of Deuteronomy 17, verse 17. For there the Lord Himself said, Neither shall the king multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Here's my point. You see, the loosening of David's standards in one area of his life made it easier for him to compromise in other areas. One author puts it this way, David's concessions fostered in him a habit of sensual indulgence which predisposed him to the evil solicitation of that evening hour. And this can happen to us. You see, at first glance, you might not see the correlation between lying to your boss and then lying to your spouse. But when you break down your integrity in one area, you're inclined to repeat it in another. You might not see the association between cheating on your income tax and then cheating on your mate, but it's there. That association is very real. You see, little compromises are what lead to big compromises. Lying to associates at work is good practice for lying to your family at home. Integrity, moral integrity, needs to permeate our lives, not just get applied whenever it's convenient. See, I have no doubt David's sin with Bathsheba began years earlier when he figured it was easier to just add a new wife rather than make life work with the wife he had. You know, laws today don't allow people the luxury of a literal harem. But many people today I know maintain a harem mentality. They believe it's easier to just find a new spouse than make happiness happen with the one they've got. Marriage takes work. Family counselor, Dr. Norman LeBenz, he puts it in the positive. He says, there is no better safeguard against infidelity than a vital, interesting marriage. In sports, we say the best defense 
is a good offense. To protect your family against infidelity, work hard and long at making your marriage a great one. You know, I'm sure you've heard the old expression, the grass always looks greener on the other side. You ever heard that? We all have. But in addition, please remember, where the grass looks greener, the water bill is higher. Hey, rather than us till the garden of our marriage, plant and plow and hoe and weed and wait for the harvest, often we neglect our garden and we wonder why there's no fruit. Have you been doing that in your marriage? You know, in marriage, we'd rather go to the supermarket and pick something off the shelf, something ready to eat, than to sow and seed and water and plant and work the soil of our relationship. It's been said, an affair is nothing but love for the lazy. Well, what set David up for temptation? Certainly, it was a lack of direction and a lack of affection. But it was also a lack of discretion. He failed to control his thought life. You know, it's been said, promiscuity begins in the head long before it ends in the bed. You see, it wasn't the look that brought David down. It's what took place afterwards in his mind. It was the lingering lust. It was all the justifications and the rationalizations. Eugene Peterson writes a truth. He says, there is nothing wrong with happening to see a beautiful woman bathing. Nothing wrong with recognizing her God-given physical attraction. Nothing wrong with an involuntary rapid pulse beat, a surge of red-blooded manhood, an inner whisper, wow. But now the struggle begins. The struggle with his fantasies and his flesh and his faith and his future. I don't know the exact thoughts that went through David's mind, but I am sure they weren't pleasing to God. I'll tell you for sure, David didn't think about his responsibilities to his family. That wasn't what he was thinking about. Or his obligation to Bathsheba's husband. Or the cunning of Satan. Or his devotion to God. Or his example to the nation. I'll tell you what David was thinking about. David was thinking about David. That's all he was thinking about. His mind swirled with wild rationalizations. All I want to do is see her up close. We'll just chit-chat over some, a cup of coffee. Oh, she's probably lonely. Maybe I can be her friend. Perhaps we can pray together. And I just happened to be out on the porch and just happened to look her direction and, and just happened to see her. Oh, it must be God's will for us to get to know each other. Hey, there is no end to what the mind will think when the heart is evil. Don't you be duped. David became proud. He acted like he was invincible. He forgot the truth about God and about life and about himself. Rather than walk humbly with his God, David became self-confident, not God-confident. Rather than walk, walk with God, he ignored the Holy Spirit's conviction. He blew right through the red light of his conscience. He ran the stop signs in Scripture. David ceased being honest with God and with himself and with others. And he's about to stumble into a scary situation. There is a London medical journal. It's called The Pulse. It once reported about a man who underwent electrical shock treatments to cure himself of adultery. 
For six days, he sat in a dark room watching alternating photographs of his wife and his mistress flash up on the screen before him. Well, when the psychiatrist showed him pictures of his mistress, a 70-volt zap stung him. When his wife's photo popped up, a recording of how he was hurting her and harming their marriage played repeatedly. Well, I'm not sure if the electric shock helped him or not. But I am sure a better cure for infidelity is to recognize its scary, frightful dangers and then set up some boundaries in your life to protect yourself. Once there was a married man who worked in an office full of beautiful women. And as a warning, he would carry around a nail in his pocket. Someone would ask him why, and he replied, I've learned a lot from this nail. Its head keeps it from going too far. David needed to use his head. David didn't need electrical shock treatments. He needed some discretion. You see, he failed to set boundaries and maintain buffers in his relationships with other women. See, I believe it's vitally important that we keep a healthy emotional distance in our relationships with members of the opposite sex. A clear cushion is needed. If you're a woman, you cannot be best friends with a man who's not your husband. You can't be that. It's too risky. And if you're a man, you can't be best friends with a woman who's not your wife. On the job, in the neighborhood, even at the church... If we start getting too transparent and too intimate with a person of the opposite sex who's not our spouse, it should scare us, for we are headed for serious trouble. You see, it's called treasure sharing. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. You see, when I share my treasure with someone, my laughter, my interests, my dreams, my desires... When I share my treasure with another person, eventually they'll have my heart. Your heart follows your treasure. That's why we should always reserve treasure sharing for our spouse. Anytime you interact with members of the opposite sex, you need to avoid isolated locations and extended hours and sexual innuendo and physical contact that can be misinterpreted. Here's the rule. Time plus opportunity equals trouble. Time plus opportunity equals trouble. If there's time, you need to make sure there's no opportunity. And if there's opportunity, man, you need to make sure there's no time. Remember, it's the little concessions that lead to greater compromises. Well, you see, this David, he lacked discretion and direction and affection. And tragically, he scratched his itch. Even though David had an itch, Bathsheba certainly intensified it. She helped him scratch. You see, David was not the only one who lacked discretion in this story. I mean, what is this gal doing taking a bath in full view of the king's palace? You got to believe she was craving some attention. Perhaps her marriage had grown stale. Maybe she was looking for a way to spice up her life. Uriah, remember, was a soldier. He was more a man of action than emotion. David, on the other hand, he was a poet and a musician and probably a romantic. In his early years, David had been the Hebrew heartthrob. 
When he returned from battle, you remember the women danced in the streets. They sung his praises. Well, Bathsheba may have been one of his earlier admirers and carried a secret crush. You see, it takes more than an idle man to get sunk into the sinkhole of adultery. It also takes a willing woman. And Bathsheba knew how to get a man's attention. She knew. A little show of skin is usually enough to trap a wandering heart. Bathsheba knew that men are aroused visually and her moonlit baths baited the hook. Ladies, please, remember that modesty is still a virtue. Oh, you can dress mod, no doubt about it. Just make sure it's modest. A short skirt, a low neckline, it sends a message. You know it does. Ladies, be careful you don't help scratch a man's itch. Dr. Robert Lamont is a neurobiologist at Yale University. And he is the world's foremost authority on itching and scratching. Did you even know there was such a thing? Well, his research is very interesting. Lamont says that the skin has different types of nerve fibers called nociceptors. And some of these nerves transmit pain sensations while others transmit itch sensations. And the two sensations are quite different. An itch spawns a desire to scratch, whereas a pain invokes a desire to avoid scratching. I mean, you don't want to touch it if it's painful. But if the itch fibers and the pain fibers are stimulated simultaneously, the sensation of pain always drowns out the itch. That's why we're inclined to scratch an itch. The scratch stimulates a pain that blocks out the itch. The problem, of course, with poison ivy is that when you scratch, the itch spreads. But I've been told if you put a hot blow dryer on the poison ivy to create a slight burn, you end the itch without it spreading, for the pain of the burn drowns out the itch. You see, Lamont's research shows that when you scratch an itch, although it might deaden the itch for a time, all you've really done is substituted a pain for an itch. And this is what makes David's action so scary. For when he took Bathsheba to bed, though David didn't realize it at the time, he wasn't just scratching an itch, he was substituting a pain, a pain for an itch. What was supposed to be a one-night stand, what was supposed to be a fleeting fling, became a frightening and fatal attraction. It wasn't as easy as David thought it would be. It never is. Several weeks later, Bathsheba sends word that she's pregnant. Suddenly, the situation gets very scary. David's one-night fling is looking like a lifetime thing. You know, the official penalty in Israel for adultery was severe. It was death by stoning. Even though David was king, he didn't think he could survive his subject's scrutiny. When the news of his sin leaked out, people would hold him accountable. And so David decides to cover it all up. Patch the scratch becomes his strategy. Two little boys, they were talking after Sunday school. One said to the other, we learned the Ten Commandments today, but I'm really confused about the Seventh Commandment, thou shalt not commit agriculture. Well, his buddy, he answered him, he said, 
Oh, that's easy. It means that you're not supposed to plow in another man's field. And though the boys got their terms confused, their answer still worked for both agriculture and adultery. David had plowed in another man's field. And now he has to manipulate that other man to try to cover his tracks. He brings Uriah home from the front lines. A little unexpected R&R. David assumes that Uriah will sleep with his wife. Think the baby's his. And the whole affair will stave David and Bathsheba's little secret. Problem is, is that Uriah doesn't cooperate. He's too noble to sleep with his wife while his men are risking their lives in battle. David even gets him drunk. Maybe a little wine will loosen up his libido. Again, Uriah sleeps on the porch. He refuses to spend the night with his wife. Finally, David concocts a scheme to snuff out Uriah. He sends a letter to General Joab to put Uriah in front of the enemy's heaviest fortifications. When the battle heats up, Joab should withdraw his cover and convert Uriah into a sitting duck. The plan gets carried out and it works flawlessly. And an innocent Uriah dies in battle. And now David, he adds murder to his adultery. In the story of David and Bathsheba, we find a grand cover-up by a once godly man. You know, the United States had its water gate. Ancient Israel had its Bathsheba gate. David tried to patch his problem. But instead, he saw that patch, and that problem, grow and escalate. Always remember a vital truth. One unconfessed sin leads to another. As the great preacher Alexander McLaren once put it, the temptation once yielded to gains power. The crack in the embankment which lets a drop or two ooze through is soon a hole which lets in a flood. You see, covering up sin is like trying to hide a puppy under your overcoat. It eventually wiggles its way out. In Luke chapter 12, verse 2, Jesus told us, For there is nothing covered that will not be revealed, nor hidden that will not be known. I used to think that this kind of scrutiny was reserved for heaven. But today, your embarrassing stuff might just turn up on the internet. Be careful. Several years ago, I read of a man named Michael Harris who robbed the Nations Bank in Washington, D.C. He stuffed the bag of loot down into his pants and he made his getaway on foot. But he was easily spotted when the chemical dye pack that the teller had placed in the bag exploded and smoke started billowing out of his pants. Police followed the smoke into a back alley where they found Harris trying to get the bag out of his pants. Well, I don't care what it is you're trying to hide, friend. One day it's all going to explode. It's all going to go up in smoke. and You're going to be found out. You see... There was one catch to David's patch. Look at the last sentence of 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 27. The last sentence in verse 27. We're going to read it together because I want you to really see it and really hear it. I want you to say it with me. The last sentence in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 27. Will you read it with me? You ready? Three, two, one. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. There was one catch. God cared about David. 
And God cared about his actions. And God was upset with David's sin and David's cover-up. God saw to it that David was miserable. For the entire year, he kept his sin a secret. Read them. Psalm 32, Psalm 38, Psalm 51. They all describe the mental depression and the physical illness that gripped David as a result of the unconfessed sin in his life. Listen to some of David's awful recollections. He says, When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. Guilt grinds a man down. On the outside, David was business as usual, but inwardly, he was in turmoil. Finally, the prophet Nathan was sent by God to confront King David. Nathan told a parable that illustrated the king's sin. And then that prophet, he pointed his long bony finger right in David's face. And he said some ominous, and I might add, some scary words. He said, you are the man. Once uncovered, David confessed his sin. God was merciful to him. He forgave his sin. But here is the scary truth. God didn't remove the sin's consequences. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 9, God tells David, You have killed Uriah with the sword, and you have taken his wife to be your wife. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house. He says, violence will ravage David's family forever. We learn from 2 Samuel that because of his sin, David lost the respect of his family, especially his kids. Absalom and Adonijah, both sons, launched rebellions against their father. Though David loved his boys deeply, his sin spoiled his opportunity to lead them. After his adultery with Bathsheba and its cover-up, David's family turned into the ultimate scary family. It became riddled with death and hatred and incest and violence and betrayal and deceit. The royal family was a royal bust. I wonder about the pain that David could have spared himself and others if he'd just gone to battle like he was supposed to. Or if he just opened his Bible rather than take a walk on the porch. Or if after seeing Bathsheba in the moonlight, he had steadied his emotions and he'd gotten a grip on himself long enough to ponder the consequences of his actions. Even after the deed was done, I wonder if the outcome would have been different if David had confessed his sins rather than conceal his sins. You see, a careful study of David's life reveals that it was the cover-up that sowed the seeds of rebellion in the heart of his sons. That's what caused the long-term consequences from which his family and the nation never recovered. And so I ask you, husband, is a few hours of escape into sensual pleasure really worth a lifetime of pain? And the possible destruction of your innocent family? Is it worth it, guys? Wife, don't stop trying to communicate with your husband and work on those differences. Take heart. Be careful. Lest in your despair, you do something you'll regret for the rest of your life and for all of eternity. 
husbands and wives. When you get that itch, don't scratch it. And if you've scratched it, don't patch it. God has the power to help us overcome sexual temptation. He also has the power to heal families and marriages that have been torn and fractured by sexual sin. Thankfully, with God, all things are possible. Here's how to take some fright out of family life. Man, humble your heart. Learn to lean on the Holy Spirit. Just because you have an itch doesn't mean you have to scratch. Get your direction in line with the will of God. Turn your affection toward God and toward your spouse. And then use some good discretion as you interact with other people. You take the fright out of family life when you make sexual purity your priority. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. I believe it's timely. I believe it's needed. Lord, I pray for those here today whose families have been scarred by infidelity, by sexual unfaithfulness, where the trust has been broken, where families have spun apart as a result. I know there's some families here this morning, Lord, that have been scarred by this sin and they're struggling to just hold on and to rebuild. Lord, I pray that that this morning you would reveal to them that forgiveness is possible and that restoration is possible and, and that if the offender is humble and willing and if the offended will forgive and allow themselves to rebuild, you can do great things. You can do impossible things. Lord, I pray for the restoration of marriages that have been scarred by this sin. And Lord, I pray for those here today, and I know they're here today. I I know there's some people I'm speaking to right now. And they are out there on the edge. And they are right on the precipice. And they've been thinking about it. And they've been imagining what it would be like. And they've been out there. And they've even got a person that they've been toying with. They've been toying with this temptation. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would grab them by the seat of the pants and jerk them back to safety this morning. Just jerk them back to a safe place. Bring them to their senses. Help them to wake up to what they've been flirting with and the danger and the damage it can cause. The lifetime, even the eternity of damage it can cause. I pray, Lord, that you'll deliver and save some that are tottering on the edge this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that the Bible is a warts and all kind of book. It just kind of lays out the scary families. It shows us just how scary family life can get if we seek to live it without you. Lord, I pray that we would learn to trust in the Holy Spirit and rely on His help and His power to both resist temptation and avoid sin, but also to forgive and rebuild. So work in our hearts today. We'll give you praise and glory for it. 
And we ask it now in Jesus' name. And all God's people said,